that's okay. Um, as we do with uh, uh, kids and, and babies, uh, our times kind of get messed. It's, it's hard to, to get to places, and, and so we're going to move it to the back to give everybody time to get here, but they're here, so we're going to go ahead and do this. And so parent-child dedication, what that is, and, and, and we did one a couple months ago, you might remember. Um, we want to acknowledge as, as parents that we are going to raise our, our children in, in a godly Christian home to the best of our ability. And as a church, we want to partner with them in doing that. And so we want to make a commitment to the parents to partner with them to do that. So, so we're going to have them say something, uh, uh, just a little statement, and then we'll have the church stand and, and, and make a statement as well, if that's okay with everybody. So, right? Cool? All right, so um, so we've got uh, three, um, and Melissa, I'm going to let you hand these out to them. Um, first, we have Nova Cheney, Mom Cassidy. And then Natalia Rose and Javier Michael with parents Urbano, did I say that right? And Sarah and sister... Daniela, all right. So this is an exciting time. Um, I love the bows. That's one of the things I miss about my girls being little was getting bows that were bigger than them. And um, and we have pictures of our girls in the hospital. My sister absolutely loved that. Like we talk about moms being big at homecoming here. Like they had moms for bows on their heads. So um, luckily they can still hold their head up. Um, but so. We are super excited that y'all want to make this commitment, and we've got a little gift. There's a Bible, a commemorative Bible, and then there's just a little uh, uh, book that you can take your uh, each kid through. Just read it to them, a picture book and things like that. So if you'll put that on the screen, um, tech team. And uh, so parents, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it, and then you just say, yes, I do. Um, so do you recognize that your child is a gift from God and both thank God and glorify God your son and daughter, or daughter, which daughters and a son? So... Yes, you do? Okay. And then, um, do you accept the joys and the responsibilities of parenting, promise to give proper love and care to your child throughout his or her life? Okay. I think that's it for the parents, right? Nope. With the help that God provides, do you commit to teach your child the fullness of God's word and demonstrate through your own example and witness what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, and strength? Okay. So now, church, if you would stand... We have a few things to you for you to just say, yes, I will afterwards. So church, will you offer your ongoing love, support, prayers, and encouragement to these parents in their role as parents? Okay. And then will you also be faithful in praying for each child and as much as you are able, help teach and set a godly example for him or her so that he or she might one day come to trust in Jesus as his or her Lord and Savior? Okay. I think that's it, right? Is there one more? Nope, that's it. Okay, so let me pray a blessing for you guys, and then um, thank you so much for making this commitment, and we will do our best to provide resources and to help and walk alongside with you as parents um, to, to raise them up the best we can. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. All right, before we get started this morning, I want to stop and just, just a couple quick things. First off, the worship team did a great job this morning, right? And... Um, Raven Martin uh, put it all together and led for the first time. Um, and so, uh, and that's really what my hope and desire of our church becomes, is a, is a church that, that empowers people in their gifts 
to, to use those gifts and talents that God's given them for the glory of God. And this worship team this morning, they put that together with really no guidance, um, just them, and, and led us in worship this morning, did a great job. And so I want to recognize that whole team. It's, it's not about them, and they understand that, but they do deserve some recognition for leading us in worship this morning. So thank you guys very much. Secondly, um, if you get our newsletter, you saw this in the newsletter this week, I want to spotlight one of our North American Mission Board missionaries today. Um, His name is Seth Beebe, and I want to just stop and pray for him in just a minute. Seth is a missionary, uh, a North American Mission Board, or NAM uh, for short, missionary um, for the Southern Baptist Convention in Toronto. Um, And I actually had the pleasure of going on a mission trip for 10 days back in 2012 and serving with Seth. Um, he was not the missionary that we were working with to go there. Uh, we were working with a, a, another NAM missionary named Jeremy and a, uh, an IMB missionary. Toronto is unique in the fact that um, Canada and Mexico, they qualify for both North American Mission Board missionaries and International Mission Board missionaries. Um, and so we were able to work with two missionaries. And at the time, Seth was there as a journeyman apprentice. He was training to be a missionary. And so he was alongside us for, for 10 days, and uh, I got to see his heart. He has a passion for Toronto. Um, if you don't know anything about Toronto, it is one of the most beautiful cities in the world. It's also the second most diverse city in the world. And so we were originally hoping to go to the London Olympics that year because we wanted to go where all the nations were coming and then go so that they could take the gospel home to their nations. For various reasons, that trip did not work out. We changed and went to Toronto um, when we found out it was the second most diverse city, and we got to go and and spend time with with Muslims and and Hindus and Sikhs, uh, most from the Middle East and um, and India, and Seth has a passion for that, so much so that when he finished his journeyman's apprentice, he left, went to seminary um, in the southeast, and now has gone back to Toronto to plant a church there. And so I just want to take a moment and pray for Seth um, as, he, as he undergoes that, that, that great, daunting, unbelievable calling that God gives certain people to plant churches. So let's pray for Seth. Father, I want to lift Seth up this morning, and uh, you know exactly what is happening um, there this morning as they, as they worship as a, as a church plant, Lord, um, but also as they navigate um, tighter restrictions in the area of COVID uh, than what we have in the United States, Lord, and, and the, the obstacles that come for that. I know Seth's heart is to reach the people of Toronto and the Ontario area for you, Lord, and I pray that you would open doors, you would give him relationships, you would give him the funding that he needs to do that. Um, so that his church might make a difference in the uh, Toronto, Brampton, Ontario area, Lord. Uh, Father, we thank you for the gift that is Seth and his call to be a missionary for you, Lord. And I pray that you bless him greatly in that and that he might make a huge difference and turn such a dark city as Toronto to you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, Several years ago, a song came out on the ra- or song came out on the Christian radio. It wasn't super popular, but I love the title of it. And the title was "There's a Beauty in Simplicity." And as I think about that terminology, beauty in simplicity, it really is that. Simple is beautiful. In our lives, in our world, simple is beautiful. In fact, Andy Stanley says, "Growth creates complexity, which requires simplicity." Leonardo da Vinci says simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. And Winston Churchill says out of intense intense complexities, intense simplicities emerge. When we bring simple 
when we bring simplicity into our world, life gets a whole lot easier, right? I can't tell you how many times on Christmas Eve I sat up all night long trying to put together dollhouses and toys and complex instructions. And then I discovered this store named Ikea. And you could go buy it and put one screw in it, and it was done. And simple was great. Apple created a whole revolution with the iPod, the iPad, and the iPhone based on a simple design of one button and a scrolling wheel. Do you remember the original iPods? They realized that technology was becoming too complex for the average person, and so they brought a simple design. You take the cover off, and it is very complex on the inside, but what you see on the outside is simple, easy to use, easily understandable. And what I think happens, one of the things I've learned over the years in my journey with Christ is that too often myself and other believers have tried to make living the Christian life way too complex. We try and make it too complex, and in turn, we've made our impressions of God too complex. We've made it very difficult. Difficult to, to live as a Christian, difficult to follow all the, 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 the rules and the rituals and the way that, that a Christian is supposed to live. And in turn, we've, 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 we've made this God, this, we make God this complex being that is very difficult for us and others to understand. Now, while God is a complex being, and God is so complex and so vast and so big and supernatural, our minds will never fully be able to comprehend this, right? We're never going to be able to fully comprehend the complexities of God and all of his attributes. But that doesn't mean that we can't take some of his attributes and put them in more simpler terms that helps us understand a little bit more these great complexities of God. And that's where we're at today with, with, our, with our attribute we're going to look at today. We're going to look at God's faithfulness. And I think when we look at the, God's faithfulness and we look at it in a simple way, it's going to open the doors to so much more of understanding his complexities. Because when we see that God is faithful, we see that everything else about him is true. And so we have the ability to look at this attribute and see it in a view of simplicity so that we can understand his whole being better. So, as we look at the faithfulness of God, I hope that you see that everything about him is what he says it is, and that he exemplifies each attribute of himself through this. So we're going to start in Jeremiah chapter 10. If you want to turn to Jeremiah chapter 10, we're not going to read the whole thing, but I want you to be able to look at uh, a passage that that tells us a little bit about this. We'll get there in a second. But first... When we say God is faithful, we have to zoom out to a bigger picture view of what that looks like and then zoom back in to see individual attributes of what that faithfulness looks like. So when we zoom out, we see one overarching theme. And that one overarching theme theme that we see about God's faithfulness is that God is integrity. God is integrity. He's truth. God is a God of truth, a God of integrity and truth. And he presents that to us in three different ways. In three different ways does he present his truth, his integrity. And the first way he does that is through his genuineness. And in his genuineness, we see that he's being true. We see that he's living out his truth. The second way we see that is through his veracity. We see that he's telling the truth. The things that he says are true. 
And then finally, the third thing that we see is we see it in his faithfulness. And in his faithfulness is where he proves truth. He proves that his genuine and his veracity, he proves all of things to be true. And so when you put those three things together, we see the truth that's going to set us free and open our minds to the complex nature of God. And so when we think of truthfulness primarily as telling the truth, we have to first look at his genuineness. And his genuineness is being true. It's the most basic dimension of truthfulness, is being genuine. You ever met somebody that's truly genuine? You know that there's not a bone in their body that could deceive you because everything about them is true. That's God. He's real. He's a real God. And there's many false gods in this world today. There's many false go- there were many false gods in Israel, and there's many false gods today. And, I, and as I talked about Seth just a few minutes ago, one of the things that we did on this mission trip, the first, we, we got there on a Saturday, and then on Sunday, they took us to prepare us for the culture that we were going to go into. And so they took us to a Hindu temple, and I'm going to try and say the name so that you can get it right, so that I can, you can get an understanding. It's Baps Sri Swaminarayan Mandir is the name of this temple. And it's in Brampton, Ontario, suburb of Toronto. And it is massive, and it is beautiful. And this is ivory from uh, India. And on the inside, everything is made of cedar and wood. And it is beautiful. And inside, when you go in and, and you see this, this, big, this big foyer as you walk in, and, and you're just blown away by, by the beauty, and then they take you down this corridor to another area, and you enter into this room. And this is the room of the gods. And if you look at this room, you can see back in the back of the picture where it's lit up, you can see little doll-like figurines. And each one of these doll-like figurines is one of the gods that they worship. So think about this. You've got this giant room with hundreds and hundreds of people worshiping these dolls. And this is one of the first times in my life that I was tr- my heart was truly broken because I watched people openly worship another god. Or so I thought they were, like, the first time I saw them openly worshiping another god. Because what I would see is, is they would lay there face down, prostrate on the ground, worshiping these dolls. And devoting their whole life to it. They would spend a day there worshiping these gods. And they had a god for each different thing. And as I watched them worship these false gods, I was convicted of my own worship. I was convicted of the lack of devotion and the lack of passion that I have in my own worship to, this, to the one true God. Because I was watching them. They didn't care what anybody else thought. They were on their knees. They were on their face worshiping. And I come into worship and I'm like, can I raise my hand? Or should I not? Is my deodorant good enough for me to raise my hand this morning? You know, and, and I start overthinking what everybody else around me is going to say. I make my worship complex. And then for them, their worship is simple. It's right there. And I, and I have a hard time letting myself go in worshiping the one true God. So how do I know that God is the one true God? Well, this is where Jeremiah 10 comes in. Because in Jeremiah chapter 10, Jeremiah is prophesying. And in this prophecy, he is speaking about false idols. He's speaking about false idols, and he's speaking about the one true God. In fact, Jeremiah is actually ridiculing the false gods. He's making fun of the false gods. And 
I found myself, when I was on this trip to Toronto, I found myself having similar thoughts because not only that day did we f- visit this Hindu temple, and one of the things that, that caught my eye and caught my humor was that in that room there were, there were gods that were lit up and everybody was worshiping them, but then there were areas that um, the, the lights were off and the doors were closed. And, and this kind of reminded me of a trip to Disney World where you go into one of their, their rooms and they have all their different puppets and animatronic things, you know? Um, and, and the doors would open and they would say their speech and then you'd continue on the ride and then the doors would open and close after they said their speech. And they had these, these areas that the doors were closed and the, and, and the gods were, weren't there. And so I asked somebody, I asked one of the, the, the docents or one of the tour guides, I said, why is that one not open but this one is? And her response was, well, the gods are taking a nap right now. And I caught myself trying not to laugh out loud because I'm like, my God don't take naps. He rested on the seventh day, but has he rested since? I don't know. Um, but, but like, they, 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 they were these dolls, and they're like, the doll is taking a nap, and so they can't worship them right now. And I just tried really hard to keep that inside of me that I thought that was hilarious. And then we left there, and we went to another religion, um, the Sikhs. And, and, and I did not know much about the Sikhs. They are commonly uh, mistook to be Muslim because they wear similar head headgear, and we went to a Sikh, it's called a Gurdwara, and, and this is their temple, and, uh, and if you don't know anything about the Sikh religion, uh, they're very community-minded, we ate lunch there, they serve a meal 24 hours a day, seven days a week for anybody in the community to come in, you have to take your shoes off when you walk in, you have to cover your head, and then you go into a room, and everybody's sitting on the floor, uh, and we sat on the floor, and we watched them worship, and we wor- they, they worship the guru. And I thought the guru was the man that was sitting up there, and there was people with feathers fanning, fanning this man. And I'm like, well, that's the guru. He's the you know, guru. He knows all, right? The guru is not a person. The guru is a book. And they were worshiping a book. And I'm like, what? Like, the book is not a god. But they were worshiping it. And, and, and so I was just blown away because I got to see people for the first time worshiping things that I did not consider to be the one true God. A.W. Tozer reminds us that the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. And our world is full of idols that people have made gods, not just the gods of Greek mythology or those that I witnessed at the Hindu faith um, where the Hindu faith worships thousands of gods, different gods. Um, But we've made money, we've made fame, We've made sex, technology, celebrities, politics, all into gods that we worship. We've made sports into gods that we worship. And Jeremiah says, as he's prophesying about the false idols and the one true God, in Jeremiah 10.10, he says this, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. At his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. So in the middle of all of this making fun of these other gods, ridiculing these other gods, Jeremiah stops and says, but the Lord is the true God. And if you know anything about the the time period, when it says Lord and it's capitalized, that actually is where the word Yahweh would have been. Because they could not say the word Lord, they would say Yahweh. But Yahweh is the true God. Well, fast forward to the New Testament in John 17, 3, and out of the words of Jesus Christ himself, he says this. 
He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. God is what he appears to be. God actually is these attributes. He's real. He is who he says he is. He's true in his being. He's genuine. And so when we find out that God is true in himself, in his being, in his attributes, then we can look at what he says. And this is where God's veracity comes in. God speaks the truth. He represents things as they really are. Meaning what God says is accurate. 1 Samuel 15, 29 says, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And then if you continue into uh, Titus 1, 2, it says, God does not lie. In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. And then in Hebrews 6, 18, it says, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, he who have we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We look at the scriptures and we believe them to be true. Therefore, when they say that God cannot lie, we know that God is a God of truth and God speaks the truth. When we say that, when we look at the scriptures and we believe them to be true, we call this biblical inerrancy. And over the years, biblical inerrancy has become a real hot button issue in the world of evangelical evangelicalism and Protestant churches, and, and so much so that there's been a lot of controversy. So, so this controversy is going on, and in 1978, a group of theologians and a group of pastors got together, and they released a document, and this document is titled The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, and I want to read you a short summary of what this statement says when it comes to the, the veracity of the Bible the truth of the Bible, the truth of the scriptures. Number one, it says, God who is himself truth and speaks truth only has inspired a holy scripture in order thereby to reveal himself to the lost, to lost mankind through Jesus Christ as creator and Lord, redeemer and judge. Holy scripture is God's witness to himself. Two, holy scripture being God's own word written by men, prepared and superintended by his spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's pledge in all that it promises. Number three, the Holy Spirit, Scripture's divine author, both authenticates it to us by his inward witness and opens our minds to understanding its meaning. Number four, being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all of its teachings, no less in what it states about God's act in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. And five, the authority of Scripture inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the Bible's own, and such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual and the church. They wanted to, much like the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople had the creeds that really clarified our doctrine, this statement clarifies the belief that God's word is true. And 
when we study God's word, when we dive into it, when we see the things that are said in it and then are backed up by things that have actually happened, we understand that God is truth. His word is truth, and therefore we know that his truth can be trusted, which leads us to God being faithful. God is a genuine, real God who speaks the truth, is the truth, and has given us the truth for us to follow him by. And it's in his actions, when we see that he's genuine in truth and being, truth in his word, we can place our trust in his faithfulness because he proves his truth through his actions. And that's what faithfulness is. Faithfulness is God proving everything else that he has said and done to be true. His faithfulness, he keeps all of his promise. Because his unlimited power and capability, he could never commit himself to do something of which he would eventually prove incapable. If you go back to the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 23, uh, Balak is talking with Balaam, and he has asked Balaam to curse Israel. And if you read through the whole chapter of of Numbers chapter 23 and Numbers chapter 24, what you see is that Balaam does not, uh, Balak wants Balaam to curse Israel to bless or to protect Midian and Moab. So you got some different political um, things going on at the time. And so when Balak wants Balaam to curse Israel, this is going to protect them. But every time that Balaam opens his mouth, instead of cursing Israel, he blesses Israel instead. And it's a fascinating story to read. So if you read through that in Numbers 23 and 24, but uh, chapter 23 verse 19 is something that I want to pull out of this. It says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Balaam is saying, God doesn't lie. God doesn't change his mind. If he says it, he does it. Because he has said it, and he's done it. He's proved it to us over and over again. Look at history, and you can see God's hand of providence all throughout history. And so whenever Balak is wanting Balaam to curse Israel, Balaam does the opposite and blesses Israel because God has proven himself time and time again. Well, I want to fast forward to the New Testament because like I've said before, I think looking at the Old Testament and then seeing how we then see things relate in the New Testament really help us in our walk with God and help us understand the whole narrative of the gospel. If we go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and Paul is taught, preaching here in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 and 24, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the key here in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Verse 23 tells us that when Jesus Christ comes, God will sanctify you completely so that when Jesus comes, your whole spirit and soul and body will be kept blameless because he's faithful. He said he's going to restore. He said he's going to redeem. He said he's going to create you new. And because he is faithful, he will surely do it. God is a faithful God. And look at the examples of God's faithfulness in Scripture. Think about the promise to Abraham of a son. Think about the promise of Abraham to 
uh, when Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac and he brings a substitute, a substitutionary atonement for the sacrifice. He promises the land to the Israelites. In Genesis 3.15, it's the first promise God gives of a Redeemer to come. And if you look all throughout Scripture, you see these promises that God has given to his people. And then later on, you see the fruition of those promises. And sometimes those promises take years. The promise to Abraham of a son took years. The promise of the Messiah coming was prophesied hundreds of years beforehand. And it took that long, but it happened. Even though all of these things took years to be fulfilled, God still proved that he's faithful in fulfilling them. Because God is a God of faithfulness. So if we've got a God that's genuine, we've got a God that is true in his word, and a God that is faithful to us, then how as a believer do we receive this faithfulness? How as a believer do we receive God's faithfulness? Well, the first thing that we have to do is as followers of Christ, we have to take a sim- the simple attribute of God and use it to live our lives sold out for him. And by doing that, the, the way we do that first is we anchor our foundation to God's faithfulness. We anchor our foundation to it. Hebrews 6.18, I read that just a minute ago. It says, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. It continues in verse 19 saying this. We have what I just said in verse 18. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Because in the Old Testament, the only person that could go behind the curtain was the high priest. And now here in Hebrews, as, 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 we're, as we're learning more and more about the faith, we can see that when we anchor ourselves to the faithfulness of God, when we put our, our, our anchor in our soul, we have a hope that allows us behind the curtain. Much like in the Wizard of Oz, when they pull back the curtain to see the wizard, they got to see behind the back door, behind what everything's hidden. And when we put our hope and trust in Jesus Christ, that God sent him to be the savior of our world, we get a hope that helps us enter into that inner curtain. We get to see behind the curtain and to get a glimpse of who God is. When I think of an anchor, I think of those used on a ship. And, and a, a week or so ago, we took a, a quick vacation down to Galveston. And uh, um, we love going to the beach, but one of the things that, that we like to do when we're down in Galveston is go down by the, the cruise terminal. If you've ever been to the cruise terminal in Galveston, when there's ships in port, it's really, really impressive to see these huge cities that float on top of the water. And when we were down there a couple of week, or a week or so ago, there was actually two um, ships in port getting ready for the cruise industry to resume. So they were, they were just sitting there. They weren't being loaded with people or anything. They were just sitting there. And, 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 and even when you're couple hundred yards away they're still just massive and, and and huge some of the biggest things on earth and they are able to float them on the ocean but but because these ships are massive they have to have an anchor that is relative in size to it an anchor that matches it in size in order to help hold it in place if necessary so these anchors have to be these ships are, are large these anchors have to be large as well 
The anchors that are used on vessels such as aircraft carriers, container ships, and cruise ships often weigh over 60,000 pounds each. That's big. That's big. Each link on the chain that holds the anchor will weigh itself around 500 pounds. It's like two of me is a link in a chain. These things have to be strong because when the ship is out at sea and needs to anchor in because there's a storm or rough seas and they need to find a secure place, they have to have something that they can put their hope in. They have to have something they can put their faith in that it's going to hold them where they need to be. So they have these strong, heavy anchors. Think about this. If we have a God who is infinite, supernatural, omnipresent, and strong, we can anchor ourselves in his truth and find the stability that so much of our world is lacking. When we anchor our hope in him, when we anchor our foundation to God's faithfulness, we find the stability our lives need. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. If you've ever seen a ship or been on a ship when there's a storm and it's anchored in, it's not just sitting there. It's being tossed to and fro, but it stays in its spot that it needs to be. It stays in its secure location. Much like when we put our faith in the faithful, in our, we put our hope in the faithfulness of God, our anchor keeps us there. And because we do that, then we are able to mirror God's faithfulness and truth. We are able to mirror it. Mirror it. Second Corinthians Four, two. We're to emulate his tra- truthfulness. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. When I say we are to mirror God's faithfulness and truth, that means when we share the gospel with others, we share it truthfully. We don't change it. We don't manipulate it. We don't deceive. We share God's truth plain and simply. We share God's truth plain and simply because God's word is truth. So we give this open statement of truth, commending ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. People know when you're dishonest. People can, dece- can, 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 can pick a, a deceiver out pretty good. Some are really good at hiding it, but it says in verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And so we can anchor our foundation to his faithfulness. We have to mirror God's faithfulness and truth, and then last, we keep our word just as God has. God's people are not to give their word thoughtlessly. We're to give our word and remain faithful to it. If we say we're going to do something, we are to do it. If we say we are going to pray for someone, we pray for them. Look at what Ecclesiastes 5 says. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow then that you should vow and not pay. When we give our word, we keep it. Because if we are to live lives that emulate God, and if God is faithful to us and God keeps his word to us, then when 
we give our word to him and to others, we need to keep our word to them. And that doesn't mean that we're going to live a perfect life and we're not going to be, I mean, and that we're going to be perfect in Sarah because, frankly, we've all let someone down, right? And we're going to continue to let people down. But as we strive to glow, grow closer to Christ, closer to God, we need to try our best to keep our word just as God's kept his word to us. But the hard part about this is if you don't know God, and when I say know God, it's easy to know God, like know about God, but, but not actually know God, not have a relationship with God. So if you don't have a relationship with God, if you, if you don't have it professed that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and he is your Lord and Savior, then this is very, very hard to understand. This becomes very complex because you, you, you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you helping you navigate this. But if you've made that profession of faith, if you've... If, allowed Jesus to become your Lord and Savior, you began to follow him. You, you accepted that God sent Jesus Christ, his one and only son, to die on the cross for you, for your sins, for the forgiveness of your sins, and that he died, was buried for three days, and then rose again to defeat death once and for all. If you, if you haven't come to belief in that, and you have not professed that, and professed that Jesus is Lord and Savior because of that, then the Holy Spirit does not live inside of you. But if you have, then you have been indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit begins to make these things, these attributes of God that can seem so complex, so broad, clear. And you can begin to follow him. You can begin your journey with him. And so we're going to have a time of response. I'm going to ask the band if they would come up and, uh, and just lead us in a time of response. And, and, and my, my prayer and my, my request to you this morning is that if you have felt God's faithfulness but didn't know what it was, if you've had supernatural things in your life happen that you didn't know where they came from, but now today you are realizing that there is this great being that's in control of your life. And he is a, the one true God that is genuine in his being and in his words and in his faithfulness. He is true. And today is the day that you need to give your life to him. Because if you see that God is true, and God is truth, and you've had a hard time believing that he would be willing to send his son to die on the cross for you, it's time to bring those things together. Because when we look at this book, and we see stories of truth, stories that are being verified by archaeologists every day, that this is truth. And the center point of this book, the main message of this book, is that God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. It's time to put that truth into your heart and anchor your soul to his foundation. So I'm going to say a prayer, and if you feel God leading you in that way, you can come down front, but if that's uncomfortable for you, I will meet you after church, and we can talk more about that.